one. Good morning. morning, man. Oh, all right. Well, have you guys enjoyed the snow? I know that I have. It's been great. Pray for more. Pray for more. Oh, man. Church discipline for you, Joe. It's coming. It's coming. Oh, gosh. Well, I'm so glad to have you guys here again this morning. Um, one Bible teacher begins his introduction to the fifth chapter of the book of Mark, the, the chapter that we're in right now, by saying that it is the, the St. Jude chapter of this gospel, the St. Jude chapter of this gospel. And if you have a Catholic background, then you might know that St. Jude was actually the saint of hopeless causes, the saint of hopeless causes. And this is why Danny Thomas named the children's hospital that he founded St. Jude, because he desired to help those children who other medical facilities would have deemed untreatable. And so when we come to this fifth chapter of the book of Mark, we, we see Jesus, right? And we see him interacting with people to whom the world at that time deemed to be lost causes, to have no hope. And last week we saw Jesus, he liberated this man who is in bondage to a legion of demons. Not just, not just one demon, but an entire legion. Something that, that no one else had the power to do or thought possible. And then this week, Jesus deals with a woman who has suffered from 12 years of bleeding and a little girl who is at death's door. And from the outside looking in, you would think that neither of them would have any hope whatsoever. But as we will see, we, we humans are often far too quick to judge someone as a lost cause. But in the hands of Jesus, there's, there's no such thing. There's no such thing as a lost cause. And we have seen that he is the creator God. Right, who has the power to speak commands to the winds and the waves, and they obey. We've seen that he has the power to cast out demons. And now we see that he is the great physician who has the power to heal all wounds, to cure every disease, both physical and spiritual. And you may think, well, well we have doctors, right, we have psychiatrists who can do similar things, so it's not really all that special, especially, especially in today's modern age of, of modern medicine and, and advanced psychiatric techniques. But you see what truly separates him from earthly physicians, physicians and practitioners of any sort of psychiatric help is that only this, only this physician has the power to raise the dead to life both spiritually and physically. Now, Ethan, Ethan is a wonderful doctor. He's fantastic. I actually don't know that for sure because I haven't actually seen him in his practice, but I assume it's true. But not even he can do that. Not even he can raise the dead. So that's what we want to explore today. We want to look at this power of Christ. But first, let us pray. Father, we thank you for bringing us here this morning. God, this is such a, a wonderful opportunity to dive into your words and to hear what your spirit has to say to us. And so, Father, I, I pray that you give us ears to hear. 
And Lord, we love you. Pray this in your son's name. Amen. Now, last week, we saw that after Jesus cast out the demons from the man who had been, been suffering at their hands for some time. The people who saw this miracle occur, who were around Jesus at this time, and actually watched the demons leave the man and then enter into this herd of pigs, they didn't, they didn't thank him. They weren't, they weren't happy or excited for this man to be free of his torment. But what'd they do? They begged him to leave. They begged Jesus to leave. They were afraid of him. They wanted nothing to do with him. And so Jesus and his disciples, they set sail once again and crossed back over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And since the word was out of all these miracles that Jesus had been doing, as soon as he got to the shore, he was once again surrounded by this, by this very large crowd who had come to see him and perhaps even witness a miracle if they're, if they're lucky. And now we read in verse 22 that, that one man in particular fought through the crowd desperately so that he could throw himself down at the feet of Jesus. Let's take a look at verse 22. It says, Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet. Now this man, Jairus, wasn't just anyone. He was a man of, of rather high esteem. And as we read in our verse, he was the ruler of the local synagogue. And the rulers of the synagogues, they weren't, they weren't rabbis per se, but they were those who, who attend the synagogue, make sure everything is running correctly, and they essentially ordered the services that were held within the synagogue. And this position was one that came with, with great privilege and great honor. And so this man was, was a big deal, and he was highly looked upon by his peers. And yet, despite that, he flung himself into the dirt in humility at the feet of Jesus. And we find out why in verse 23. He says, And he implored earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. Now, the Greek word that's used here for at the point of death is the word eschaton. It is the same word where we, get, where we get the word eschatology. It's a fancy word, right? Which is the Christian, in Christian terms, it, just, it simply means the study of end times. That's what eschatology means, studying the end times. And so the word eschaton, therefore, just simply means the end or at the utmost extreme. And so what Mark is trying to get across and what this, what this man is saying to Jesus is that this girl is not just sick. And not only that, she's not just severely sick, but rather she is at the extreme end of her short life. And if you've ever been around someone who is at the end of their hospice care, then you have seen what sort of state that this, this poor girl is in. And so the heart of our Lord Jesus was moved with compassion. And he began to follow Jairus to his home. Now at this point, the crowd had still not died down around Jesus. They were still, they were still following after him and crowding in around him and his disciples. And as they were led, to, led by Jairus to their home, they were just following after him, kind of like uh, 
Oh, what's that movie with uh, Tom Hanks? And he's going on the jog, and all, this whole crowd of people start following him. What movie is that? Forrest Gump. Forrest Gump. There we go. Just like Forrest Gump. But as they were making their way, something happened that caused the disciples irritation. Caused the disciples irritation. And must have caused Jairus to be overcome with anxiety himself. You see, Jesus, on this important mission, suddenly stopped. He suddenly stopped. And he suddenly stopped because, because he felt something. He felt something different than the pushing and the shoving and the touching of the crowd that had come up around him. And he had felt some of his divine power flow out of him. And Jesus asked in verse 30, Who touched my garments? And the disciples, what kind of audacity do they have? They were a bit exasperated. And we're thinking Jesus was, was being ridiculous. And they say in verse 31, you, you see this crowd pressing all in around you, don't you? You, you? you see these people. Now why in the world would you ask something as ridiculous as who is touching me? The real question is who, who isn't touching you? Well, luckily for the disciples, Jesus ignored them. And he continued to look around for the one who had touched his clothing. And as he was looking, this, this sad and, and pitiful woman stepped out from the crowd and approached him so afraid that she was shaking. And she fell down before him. Now we don't know whether she fell before Jesus out of respect because she knew who he was or simply because the fear she felt had her shaking so fiercely that she could no longer stand. And, and personally, I think it's a combination of the two. This terrified woman then told Jesus a, a heartbreaking story of 12 long years of misery. And her story is given to us in verse 25 and 26. It says, And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for twelve years, and who had suffered much under the physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. Now last week I mentioned the dread that was felt by any Jewish individual who was declared to be unclean in the sight of God. And if we turn to the book of Leviticus and open it up to the 15th chapter, you would see that a woman in this condition was to be considered unclean. And so this woman had not just been suffering physically for 12 years, but she has been suffering socially and spiritually as well. Because of her condition, she was a complete outcast. And if that's not bad enough, she was destitute. She had spent every last penny that she had going from physician to physician, seeking some sort of relief at her never-ceasing hemorrhage. But instead of finding a cure that would not just make her physically whole again, but would set her on the path of becoming socially and spiritually whole, the problem only worsened, driving her deeper into despair. And what a, what a picture of the human condition this is. There is an, an innate human understanding that we in and of ourselves are not whole. We're not whole. We are missing something. 
And when we experience physical or emotional suffering of various kinds, this just intensifies that feeling. Knowing that this, this is not the way it's meant to be. And we often search and search for something to bring us into that wholeness that we so desperately want. To either fix us physically or emotionally or socially or spiritually. And so we spend untold amounts of money on self-help books. Or we obsess over the right filter to put on our photos to post on social media to gain some sort of recognition. We consult religious gurus. We get tarot card readings. We send money in to televangelists who, who promises to send us manna from heaven that's been dipped in angel tears, that's gift wrapped in, in leather from the Apostle Paul's left sandal. And we even, we even go to church, right? We even go to church thinking that that act in and of itself will do the trick. And we do all of these things. And we go to all of these places so that maybe, just, just maybe, we can feel that wholeness. We can feel at peace. But remember, going to all of those physicians not only left her bankrupt, but it left her condition worse. And just like that, all of these things that we attempt to do in order to make ourselves whole leaves us bankrupt. And I'm not talking about just financially. Because no matter how hard we try, eventually we always feel worse off than before. And it might be temporary relief, sure. But eventually those good feelings wear off. And we feel further isolated socially. Or our physical condition gets no better, or even possibly gets worse. But ultimately, we feel further away from God, from the one who made us, than ever before. And just like the woman in this story, we, we find that nothing works. And so we read in verse 27 that she heard Jesus was coming into town. And she had heard of the miracles that he could perform. And so in desperation, she thinks to herself, if I, could just, if I could just touch him, if I could just touch his garments, I will be made well. And even though it was against the Old Testament law to touch someone when you were unclean, she risks it anyway. And she goes to Jesus in the midst of this crowd, and she reaches out and she touches his robe. And in verse 29... It says that immediately, immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. After 12 long years of misery, she was now beginning to feel whole again. And just as she thought that she had gone unnoticed, Jesus stops. And she comes before him terrified knowing that she had been healed, that though she had been healed, she had broken the law. And yet she bears her soul to him, not leaving out a single detail. But look at the way Jesus speaks to her in verse 34. He doesn't speak to her with, with anger. He doesn't speak to her with disgust or indignation 
for all these things that she had tried to do in order to get better. No, he speaks to her with gentle and loving kindness. He says this, daughter, daughter. Can you imagine how wonderful it must have been for her to hear those words of intimacy from our Lord? Daughter, your faith has made you well. You see, he he first wants her to be sure that she understands what had happened. You see, there was, there was sort of this mysticism that existed in this day that if you could just get near enough to someone who was considered a healer or a miracle worker, if you, could just, if you could just touch them or touch something that they owned, then you could gain power from them. Or, or maybe, you could, maybe you could be healed simply by touching their garments. And sadly, this mystical belief persists even today, Right? There's an innumerable amount of people who visit the Vatican every year to see people who, who uh, or sorry, to see rather, uh, or even touch relics that are supposedly either connected with past saints, such as the bones of Peter, or even connected with Jesus himself, such as supposed fragments from the cross. And they go to the Vatican, or they go to these other places that these relics are held in, so that by touching them, they can gain some sort of extra grace, or this extra power, or merit of righteousness. But Jesus is telling this woman that even the very robe that Jesus wore carried no power. None. It was a powerless piece of fabric. That's all it was. Some some physical object did not heal her, but it was Jesus himself who healed her through her faith. And friends, that's that's true for us. That is true for us. No matter the amount of work we do, no matter how many allegedly holy relics we touch, or how many church services we go to, our complete wholeness only comes through faith in Jesus Christ. That's it. The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 5.1, For we maintain that a man is justified, which means to be declared righteous before God, to have your relationship with God restored. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith. By faith apart from the works of the law, apart from these things that we can do. Faith in Jesus, which is gifted to us by God himself, is the only way to access true wholeness, the true wholeness that we all seek. Our social wholeness will be filled as we commune with God and have intimate relationship with him. Our physical wholeness will be more fully realized than we can possibly imagine when Christ comes again and we receive our redeemed and fully sanctified bodies. And most importantly, friends, we receive our spiritual wholeness through faith. Through faith. And we are forgiven our sins and we are given the very righteousness of God and we are indwelled with the Holy Spirit. That is wholeness. That's the wholeness that we seek. And this is why Jesus says to her, 
Go in peace. Go in peace. Now, another way to translate the Greek here is go into peace. Go into peace. And and I love that. I love that so much because he is telling her that because of her faith, she can enter into peace. So friends, whether whether you've been struggling for a day, whether, whether it's been 12 years or your entire life, whether you are a believer or an unbeliever, friends, right now, through faith in Jesus alone, the door to peace can be open to you. How beautiful is that? How beautiful is that? If you want a wholeness that allows you to enter into a peace that completely envelops you in all of life's difficulties, then reach out to Jesus in faith. And get get this. Faith in the most violent act in history. Faith in the most violent act in history. And I know that there has been just as many violent, if not even more violent acts in history other than the cross. But I say the most violent act in history because it was done to Jesus, the creator himself. But faith in the most violent act in history and the one to whom it was committed against brings you the peace and joy that surpasses all understanding. How incredible is that? How precious is that wonderful gift of faith? Do you cherish it? Do you seek after it? Do you pray for it? Listen to these beautiful words by J.C. Ryle. He says, Of all the Christian graces, none is so frequently mentioned in the New Testament as faith, and none is so highly commended. No grace brings such glory to Christ. Hope brings an eager expectation of good things to come. Love brings a warm and willing heart. Faith brings an empty hand, receives everything, and can give nothing in return. Let me say that again. Faith brings an empty hand, receives everything, and can give nothing in return. No grace is so important to the Christian's soul. By faith we begin. By faith we live. By faith we stand. We walk by faith and not by sight. By faith we overcome. By faith we have peace. By faith we enter into rest. Man, how wonderful is our faith. But this joyful moment for this woman quickly turned into one of despair for Jairus. In verse 35, we are told that that while Jesus was still speaking to the woman who had just been healed, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? Now, among other things, one commentator points out that this was a moment of testing for Jairus' faith. You see, his friends encouraged him to, to not bother Jesus any longer because it was too late. It had been too slow. His daughter was dead. And the fact that they used the word teacher, that Jairus' friends used the word teacher, is evidence that they they didn't truly understand Jesus' identity and had no real reason to believe that Jesus could help in this situation. 
They may have heard Jesus teaching in the synagogue and, and maybe surmised that Jesus was this good teacher who had maybe done a miracle or two. But no matter how good of a teacher he was, there was still no way he could bring the dead to life. It was too late. And so Sinclair Ferguson points out, here was a real test of Jairus' faith. What did Jairus really think and believe of Jesus? Was he, as Jairus' servants seemed to indicate, just another teacher? Would Jesus be just as helpless as anyone when faced with the ultimate reality of death? Well, Jesus overheard the words of the servants and spoke directly to Jairus, giving him two commands. Two commands. Do not fear, only believe. Do not fear, only believe. And, and what a thing to say, right, to a father who just learned his daughter died. Don't fear, just believe. But it was precisely what Jairus needed to hear and needed to do. By telling Jairus not to fear, Jesus was telling him that even death was not stronger than himself. And he implored Jairus to trust him implicitly, unconditionally. He wanted Jairus to, to follow in the footsteps of Abraham, who was also faced with an impossible situation. You see, Abraham and his wife Sarah, they were well beyond childbearing age being in their 90s. And despite that, God promised them a son. And Paul tells us in Romans 4 that, that though Abraham knew the facts of the situation, believe me, he was well aware he was 90. And he was well aware his wife did not look a day over 85. He did not allow his actions or thoughts to be determined by his situation. Instead, Abraham kept his eyes fixed on the promise of God. And Jesus was encouraging Jairus to do the same. Do not fear. Only believe. Keep your eyes fixed on me. And we then read in verse 37 and 38 that Jesus continued on his way to Jairus' home. But he allowed no one to follow except Peter, James, and John. And when they arrived at his house, there was, there was this great commotion going on. People were wailing and weeping loudly. And that was the Jewish custom of the time that when someone died, the family was to hire professional mourners. So these people were pros. And that's, that's more than likely who these people were. These, these mourners would come out to your house and they would tear their clothing, and they would weep, and they would wail as loud as they possibly could to signify the tragedy that had just befallen this household. And so, more than likely, these people who were crying and, and wailing loudly were not their friends and family. These, again, were, were professionals hired to do that. And so Jesus says to these pros in verse 39, Why are you making this commotion and weeping? This child is not dead, but sleeping. Now Jesus is not saying that this girl is really just taking a hard nap. He was making a play on words. You see, sleeping was a common euphemism for death. But Jesus is not saying here that this girl is, is not dead, she's just dead. It's not what he's saying here. 
What Jesus is saying here is that compared to the power that Jesus possessed, death is as permanent as a short nap. Though she was dead next to Jesus, she might as well have just been sleeping. And when he said this, they they mocked him. They mocked him for it. They thought they knew better, right? They thought that all the hope was gone for this little girl and her family. But in verse 40 and 41, Jesus clears them all out of the house. And he takes with him the child's father and mother and those who were with them and went in where the child was. And he takes the little girl by the hand and says, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, rise. And verse 42 tells us, Immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was twelve years of age. The same number, by the way, of years the, the woman suffered from the bleeding, twelve years. For she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. At Jesus' command, life returned to this little girl's lifeless body. And so we have, we have seen the power of Jesus to command uh, the wind and the waves, to command nature. We saw last week Jesus' power over demonic forces when he rescued the man possessed by a legion of demons. And we saw just a few moments ago Jesus' power over disease. But now, but now, friends, now we see that even death itself cannot match the power of Jesus, the Son of God. Can you even, even imagine the incredible change that took place in that house? From from weeping to rejoicing, from mourning to celebrating, from death to life. I would have loved to see the faces of the families. That little girl came out of her room walking and laughing. And friends, this account, other than the power of Jesus, it it also points to three more wonderful realities. The first is the foreshadowing of Jesus' own resurrection. Jesus here displays that same power that brings him back from the grave after his death on the cross. And his resurrection served as as a proof that Jesus had accomplished his mission to save his people from the curse of sin. 1 Peter 1.3 says, Praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now the second truth flows directly from this. This story points to what He can do for our own spiritually dead souls. Scripture testifies that we, before faith in Christ, are by nature spiritually dead beings. Let me say that again, because we often believe that people can be spiritual apart from Christ. But Scripture testifies that without faith, we are a spiritual corpse. And so without Christ, we are by nature spiritually dead beings. Ephesians 2.1 says that you were dead in your trespasses and sin. Colossians 2.13, when you were dead in your transgression. 
1 Corinthians 2.14, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Friends, spiritual corpses cannot discern spiritual things. Our hearts were as dead as that little girl was. But, through the resurrection power of Christ, through faith in Him, just as He breathed life into that little girl, He breathes life into our dead souls. Ephesians 2.5 says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Jesus brings forth in us a spiritual resurrection of our souls. Now lastly, it is a picture of our own future bodily resurrection when Christ comes again. Jesus says in John 6, 40, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on that last day. Friends, when we, we look forward to a day of unspeakable joy. Of unspeakable joy when all of the souls who have placed their faith in Christ will be given new and glorified bodies. And this day was, was even prophesied all the way back in the Old Testament. All the way back in Isaiah 26, 19, where it says that your dead shall live, your bodies, or sorry, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. For your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. And these, these new bodies, these new bodies that we will receive, will not be touched by illness. They won't be tainted by sin, and they won't go, grow weak or tired. And so let us rejoice. Let's rejoice like the household of Jairus because just as his faith in Jesus was not misplaced even in the face of death, neither is ours. I quote again from J.C. Ryle. He says this. He says, Let us be aware, or sorry, let us beware of sorrowing like those who have no hope over friends who fall asleep in Christ. The youngest and loveliest believer can never die before the right time. Let us look forward. There is a glorious resurrection morning yet to come, as 1 Thessalonians 4.14 says, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring those with Him, those who have fallen asleep. And those words shall one day receive a complete fulfillment. As Hosea says in chapter 13, 14, I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. O death, I will be thy plague. O grave, I will be thy destruction. He that raised the daughter of Jairus still lives. When he gathers his flock around him at the last day, not one lamb shall be found missing. Praise God. Oh, friends, what, what a hope we have in Jesus. What a hope we have. We have a, a resurrection hope. 
And if that doesn't make you want to, to shout hallelujah or amen and dance for joy, I know we're Baptists, but I don't know what will. And if you are here this morning and you do not have this wondrous resurrection peace or this wonderful resurrection power that will bring eternal life and wholeness, then, then I implore you to turn away from your sin and believe in Christ and believe in what He has done. And just like Jairus, your faith will not prove to be in vain. Now there's so much more to talk about here. So many wonderful things that this account points to and teaches. But for now, we must leave it here. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the resurrection of Christ. Because in that resurrection, Lord, you're pointing us to our own resurrection. And in that resurrection, God, you, you showed us that what you did for us on the cross, what your son did for us on the cross was real. God, he took all of our sins upon himself. God, he became a curse. All for us, Lord. All so that he could absorb all of the wrath that we deserve from you. And God, we thank you for that. Lord, we love you. I pray this in your son's name. Amen.